thoughts for about Britain the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I'm joined by Fangraphs Twitter and residence John Taylor. John and I discuss mascots, John's Red Sox fandom, and Boston's decision to trade Mookie Betts. We also take a moment to remember some guys who played baseball in the AL East in the mid-90s, as well as the career of Jonathan Taylor Thomas. John also encourages you, the listener, to say hello at Fangraphs Spring Training Made-Up on Friday, March 13th in Phoenix, and to please wash your hands regularly. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of a beer at our Spring Training Meetup, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including Eric Longenhagen's top prospect list, Craig Edwards' insights into MLB's broadcasting rights, Ben Clemens' batted ball research, and David Lorla's Sunday Notes column. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with John Taylor, Fangraphs' Twitter, which begins right now. started recording and I get to welcome John Taylor to the podcast. John, you have been the voice behind the Fangraphs Twitter account. We're revealing to the world. Is, is that what this is? This is an unmasking? Dun, 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 Am dun. I being doxxed? No. Wow. I just sometimes think that what people may have thought was going on the last couple of weeks um, was me talking to myself on Twitter. <laughs> is, it, is, is, is that also not what the case is? Like... I mean, uh, I just know that all the tweets I do, I just like have you just ghostwrite them for me, and then I just copy and paste into our into our system. So, if people have noticed that the Fangraphs account has had more uh, both activity and personality in the last couple of weeks, it is uh, because of John. It is not because the account has gained sentience in any way. At least, not as far as we know. You know what the weird thing is is. When this goes live and eventually goes onto the internet and we tweet about it, I'm going to have to do the extremely meta thing of tweeting about the podcast involving the guy who tweets the stories get getting tweeted. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. The little, like, take high, a, wavy guy. Take a huge bong rip and then just post it. <laughs> I'm envisioning, like, the little waving, smiley emoticon. That's on Skype, or um, this is a very specific reference that no one else will get, but I once was uh, at like the local co-op, like the organic crunchy co-op, and I needed to pick up new vitamins, and the vitamins are right next to the, the refrigerator case that has like probiotic stuff in it, and the thing I've noticed about probiotic ads is that they they boast about how many live cultures they have in them. It's like a million live cultures. It's like when we get excited about how many simulations we do to do the projected standings. And there was like a little guy, like a little bacteria waving, like a smiley bacteria saying, hey. And I was like, I don't, I'm not here for that, but I would be disinclined to purchase that one because I don't want to, I don't want to think about the the little guy having a, I don't want to think about pronouns. I don't want to think about the little bacteria having pronouns. You don't want to have the gender. Well, first I want to say how brave it is for you to come out on this podcast and admit that you're 54 years old. (laughs) But yeah, there is something weird about like anything being gender. Like I don't, I don't know if you speak any languages beyond English, but like the fun, the one thing I find always funny about like German and Spanish and French and all of their articles are gendered like right everything like the ta- a table has a gender which i always yeah. found so strange it's like how is it how do you determine whether or not a table is masculine or feminine like yeah i guess you know do you look under the table and check to see what's down there like i don't know but 
To be, to be clear, I want the little probiotic bacteria to use whatever pronouns it prefers. I would just prefer it not have any at all. I don't want to think about it being a, a thing that can wave. I guess that's really the concern. No waving. Well, I just like the idea that it's a mask. I think, I mean... It does look like a little dude. It's it's amazing how things like that will make us will make for an easier selling point if there's a little, like, semi-human, like, smiley, wavy. It's like, oh, I can trust this. This is, yeah. this is making a personal connection with me, the consumer. Yeah. Which I think is why mascots exist in baseball generally, also for the kids, but mostly so that when you look at your team and they have a terrible roster and then you look at the mascot, you're like, oh, it can't be that bad. Dinger's here. Like... So this was not on our list of things we were going to talk about, but now I'm now we're going to talk about mascots for a hot second. So I have a number of mascot related questions for you that are just occurring to me. The first of which is, where do you where do you fall on mascots just generally, John? You pro mascot? I don't know if I'm pro or anti. I they serve a specific useful purpose, which is as I already like kids. Like, and I'm certainly not going to crap on anything that's designed to keep younger kids and fans entertained because sure. baseball for anyone under the age of like I'm going to say, like, eight is probably impossible to sit through without some kind of stimuli. Like, yeah. like I've, I've talked to enough, and this is the, the fun thing, is you know, about, like, getting older, is that the people around you just, you know, you are suddenly exposed to more and more children. Sure. And so you just hear more and more about stuff like, yeah, we took the kid to the game, and after, like, four innings, we had to leave. Yeah. They were just, like, dead, or, like, there wasn't enough interest. Or it's like, you know, <laughs> we had to keep, like, giving the child sugar or, like, walking around the concourse a million times yeah. because they can't sit still for more than 15 minutes. Yeah. I like that your options there were bored or dead. I also support mascots in that every time Lindsay and I go to a stadium and it's not for work, like, when we went to Wrigley Field or we went to Coors, to, I was about to say Coors Park, and I was like, no, that's wrong, it's Coors Field. Yeah. So we encountered, we encountered obviously Clark the Cub or whatever its cursed name is. Yeah, pantsless one. Pantsless. Yeah. And then the dreaded Dinger at Coors, and Lindsay would not go near Dinger for a photo because she didn't trust him. And then she she did though go near Clark, and we got a photo with him, and he just like put his hand over her face and just completely punked her. So in that respect, I'm pro mascot. Sure. In that they seemingly exist to torture Lindsay when we go to ballparks. Sure. I think she's probably glad that the Yankees, aside from their brief, unpleasant foray into, what was that? What was their mascot's name? Doodle or something? Dandy? Dandy. Back in the 70s. They've never bothered one since because the Yankees are bigger and better than that. You know, they're very much the... An august institution. Yeah, they're the the Roman Senate. Like, they they don't have time for such baubles. Like... But I have no real issue with mascots. I, I find the the one I enjoy the most are the one the weird inflatable ones. Sure. The ones yeah. that like bounce up and down. Like I, I don't understand their purpose, but yeah. it still amuses me all the same because I guess somewhere in my brain I'm still like three years old and just find that uh, deeply appealing. They seem to be more a phenomena of like the NBA than of baseball, at least baseball in the US. You don't see as many inflatable you don't see as many inflatables. That's a sentence. I noticed on a spring training for you that um, that Goodyear Ballpark, you know, which is the spring training home of the Reds and Cleveland's baseball team, they have a a ballpark mascot. So the terrifying baseball-headed Mr. Redlegs. Well, yeah, he was walking around because it was a Reds game, and then there was a a bluish green Goodyear mascot, which was like a fluffy animal named Ace. So I was like, aren't you supposed to, shouldn't it be a race car or like a, you know, a, or, a, or a literal blimp? 
Yeah, or like, or like a, you know, like it could be a sneaker with the the wings on it. You just know? have it be Paul von Hindenburg. Like, <laughs> that would be terrific. This terrific. Is, this is yeah. the weird thing about mascots, though, is that I find the one thing I find strange about mascots is the idea of mascot creep. In that, yeah. it's not enough for every team to have one single mascot. They also have a secondary mascot, which yes. oddly enough also becomes a weirdly gendered thing. Like yeah. Mr. Met has Mrs. Met, and Mr. Redlegs has Mrs. Redlegs, and I think there's like a female Wally, if Wally can be said to have a gender yes. for the Red Sox. But I think their brother, their brother and sister, is my understanding. Okay, they're not married. But it's not I'm even that too, because like if you go to a Nationals game, and I think probably more than Nationals games, and I remember this when I was, you know, because I, I I grew up in the D.C. area, and my my senior of high school was their first the nationals first season of existence at rfk and so the tickets were just dirt cheap and my friends and i would go all the time and then every now and then when i'm back in dc i'll go to you know regular old nationals park and so they have obviously their weird eagle mascot screech which had this strange like it was initially like a baby eagle and then at some point they decided to age him up into a teenager (gasps) which i always which i found strange they retired the old design and brought out this one that was more like you know, he was—he had like slimmer and taller, and he would talk back to his parents, and like he wouldn't do his math homework. But like, they also have like the Geico Gecko just sometimes. That—that's so, the weird mascot creep I find when it starts getting into this strange like corporate like. Yeah. Here's the Geico Gecko, and it's like, what does that have to do with anything here? What are what are we doing here? This is not. And then of course they have the racing presidents too, which I know is their own sure. special unique franchise thing. But at the same time, right. it's like. You go to a Nationals game, there are like eight different mascots, and you're like, this is this is too much right now. So I have a I have a question then, which is that if if Screech became a teenager, does that imply that Screech will one day die? I like the idea that every <laughs> mascot just eventually dies and that they have yeah. to just replace them. But I also like the idea too that that means Screech is going through puberty. Yeah. This is basically creating the canon that Screech is a sexual creature. Oh no. See, and this is the other thing about mascots, which is that sometimes sometimes I think that major league teams they want us to think too much about mascot sexuality than I'm comfortable with. Like, you know that there was a marketing meeting about Mrs. Met where they decided like how, you know, like how curvaceous to make Mrs. Met to make her appealing but not too appealing, you don't want problems, you know. Well, it's like it's like the the Space Jam movie where they introduced that Lola Bunny character, where they were just like, yeah. "Let's make a version of Bugs Bunny that preteens want to have sex with." And it's like, yeah. where, who? I need to know who in the room of like the decision making people like put their hand and was like, "You know what we need is a sexy rabbit." And everyone's just yep. like, "Yeah, no, that that sounds right. Yeah, no, got no problems here." Yeah, they're like like Jessica Rabbit, and they're like, "No, no, no, actual rabbit, actual literal, rabbit, literal rabbit, Bugs Bunny, but." you know, with hips that's sexy, which is weird. Cause yeah. also, cause like so much of like the old Bugs Bunny cartoons feature him, like, you know, wearing women's clothing or acting effeminate. So it's like someone clearly like it sublimated that and turned it into something. Not that, I don't know. There, there's a, there's probably a whole lot to be said about the sexual history and dynamics of like Warner brothers cartoons, but I'm sure. pretty sure that's not what this is for. Although I kind of be interested to see how many of your listeners want that. <laughs> Well, when Kylie was still around, he tried to make Fangraph's audio lifestyle pod, and we resisted that very strongly. Is this the part Uh, where I tell you about what renovations I'm doing to my kitchen? Because the answer is none. Zero. Yeah. I need to clean my stove, but I don't know if that counts. The Kylie reno updates have shifted to the to the master bath now. That's what that's what we're hearing about now is the vanity and the teak that's gonna go in the shower. So. Well, I, I look forward to hearing about that during Jeff Passon's next TV hit. <laughs> 
live from Astro Spring Training, the scandal baseball doesn't want you to hear. Kylie has selected a navy vanity. Oh, navy? Oh my god. That's a terrible it's, color. It's No, it's a nice looking... It's Ask Lindsay. I'm sure she got the text too. It's a nice looking vanity. Hey, let's talk about baseball because otherwise David's going to be like, you said it wasn't a lifestyle pod. John, you grew up in D.C. but you're a Red Sox fan. Like, how did that happen? What's the Red Sox origin story? So I like or I like the idea of origin story like I'm some kind of really like basic like like Sully superhero. <laughs> you still have a lot of life left, man. That's true. I was going to say far too much, but then it got really dark. <laughs> Guess it depends how things go in November. Oh, um, <laughs> no, I was born in Boston. That's where my parents moved. They they came to this. They immigrated to this country in the in the mid '80s and eventually moved to Boston a couple years after getting here. And that's where they had both me and my sister. But right after my sister was born, two years after I was born, they moved to the Virginia suburbs, Falls Church, for anyone who's interested in Northern Virginia, and then into Western Maryland, because that's where my dad got a job. Mm-hmm. So I came of age, like, you know, Western Maryland, Maryland suburbs, D.C. suburbs, like, you know, when I first started paying attention to baseball it was the mid-90s, and it was the Orioles. And that was a time sure. when the Orioles were actually good, which is, I can imagine to anyone listening now who's under the age of, like, 30 that that's an insane concept that the Orioles were ever actually, like, good. I guess, except for 2014, they made the ALCS, but that was built like a weird kind of speck in time. But yeah, regardless, like, that's when I started paying attention to baseball. And so as a kid, I was like, well, I got I got a choice I can make here. I can either, you know, be a fan of the local team, especially because that's a, there's a lot of incentive. Like, this team is good. It's Cal Ripken and, yeah. Rob, and Roberto Alomar and kind of sort of Albert Bell and uh, Mike Messina and Geronimo Barroa, a.k.a. The Chief, which really a, a problematic nickname, but still a really good one. Yeah. You know, the days of Chris Hoyles and Mike Bordick and Jimmy Key and Rocky Coppinger. A lot of remembering some guys that happened in the yeah. 90s Orioles. But the other option was I can pick the team where I'm from, because to be entirely honest, I can't tell you exactly the psychological motivations of, like, acting like I'm from Boston, essentially, because I, I lived there for all of two years, have no functional memory of the place, you know, have... It's not a, it's not the same as if, you know, you interact with other folks who are actually from Boston and can talk about, like, you know, all the various Boston things they do, like dip. But I think it was just one of those, like, kind of kid things where it's just, like, I'm going to define myself in opposition, you know? Yeah. And... I just decided it's like, I'm going to be true to my roots or whatever and be a Red Sox fan. And I didn't know it at the time because I made that decision when I was like eight or nine years old. That was the single smartest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> like, and there's no way I could have like known because it's like being a Red yeah. Sox fan in the mid nineties wasn't exactly like prestigious. No, it wasn't like picking the Yankees at that time. I and mean, even the Yankees no. at that time weren't exactly like if I had, it'd be one, it would have been one thing if I'd become a Yankees fan after their 96 World Series or something. Right. Some extreme bandwagon jumping. But like the mid 90s Red Sox were just kind of there. You know, yeah. it, was, it was a bunch of guys that nobody, Mo Vaughn and Jose Canseco were like the draws. And I guess you could get yourself into like Tim Nairing and John Valentin and is it John Valentin? I've already, I'm already butchering the names or like I don't think Ramon Martinez predated Pedro, but I wouldn't be surprised. But it was like Brett, like old Brett Saberhagen, broken right. Brett Saberhagen. Like I still remember right. the '99 ALDS against Cleveland. It was Pedro at the at the height of his powers, but then also his like extremely declining older brother, the extremely broken and old Brett Saberhagen, and like Pat Rapp or something. I, I distinctly actually remember the game one of the '99 ALCS against the Yankees. I think Kent Merker started that game for the Red Sox, which really summed up for 12-year-old me the giant power imbalance between those two teams, even though they were ostensible rivals. 
but yeah, that that's just kind of how I made that choice. It was like, you know, I may be here in, in Maryland and with all these, and at the time, like relatively successful teams, like the, the Orioles were good. The Redskins were, I think, at least they were like interesting. I think, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really much of a football guy, but I remember that being the case. Like the Capitals, I think were going to be in a Stanley cup final within a couple years from there. I think and the Jeff Halpern years, like the bullets existed and again, like mid nineties, mid nineties, Boston sports is, was a pretty bleak place. Like the Red mm-hmm. Sox were just kind of mediocre. The Celtics were coming down from the, the Larry, that was like after Larry Bird had retired and that was kind of their weird period in the wilderness up until like the late nineties where they started getting good again. Like the Patriots were completely irrelevant and on the verge of leaving the, leaving the, na- like the area. I'm sure the Bruins were a thing like. I think the most successful team in New England in that like mid to late nineties period is probably the Revolution. I think they made an MLS Cup final sometime in that period. But otherwise, like until Pedro, I shouldn't say until Pedro because Movon Movon was a thing you could hang your hat on. Sure. And he was my favorite player. He was my first favorite player because who else was I gonna pick? Like, what real appeal does like? Oh, geez, like I was gonna say like Dave Valet or like yeah. <laughs> Tom Brunansky or. Yeah, you had to do some. You had to. You had to talk yourself into some guys. That's good. Yeah, because like I'm just gonna. I'm gonna look it up now because I'm genuinely curious. Like who was on the '95 Red Sox? Because that would probably have been the first real team in my youth. Immediately, I'm. I'm looking at Luis Alisea's name. Like that's not a good start, you know. <laughs> Lee Tinsley, Troy O'Leary. Like I mean, I granted I love Troy O'Leary, but like Reggie Jefferson, like Terry Shumpert, you know. That Shumpert. pitching staff had Eric Hansen for some reason, like. That was the last desultory season of Roger Clemens in Boston, I believe. And that yep. was just, I, rem- I remember going, I could, I have tried to find it on retro sheet and I think I've maybe succeeded before, but I can't remember exactly. Actually, 96 was his last season, but my family, we took a trip to Boston at one point in like either 95 or 96 and I watched Clemens was starting that game and he got shelled, knocked out in like the second inning, absolutely terrible. And that was the one time I saw Roger Clemens pitch as a Red Sox. <laughs> And he was just awful, and so that pretty much summed up like the late '90s. Yeah, the mid to late, the mid '90s Red Sox, which just kind of like I mean, the '95 Red Sox won 86 games, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that, but it's no, you know, they won the division that year, but then they got whooped on by the Indians in division series. And then I think Mo Vaughn left the following year. For did he leave that following year? No, he was there until actually oh, my timeline's totally screwed up. He was there until '98. And then he left in '99. I'm I'm way off track right now, but this is, but see, this is what happens when you're you know this is like childhood memory of baseball. yeah. It's just weird because it all gets jumbled. Like all those yep. years get jumbled together. Like I can remember like everything from like 2001 forward. I can remember with pretty good clarity. You know, the yeah. older you get, the more clear it becomes. But everything from like '99 previous, like except for Pedro, which is the one like big shining light. You know, right. for every for every Red Sox fan of a certain age, it was like you you remember that '99 season better than anything. But yeah, like everything pre that, like the the last years of Movon, the first years of Nomar, like the the weirdness that was the Dan Duquette era, like the the pre John Henry ownership that never wanted to spend except stupidly. Like, <laughs> I wonder if that's how they went into meetings. No, no, that would be smart. Allow us to be just a little bit dumber than that, please. Ask any Red Sox fan, and the, the free agent debacle they will always remember beyond Mo Vaughn leaving for Anaheim, which turns out actually they kind of dodged a bullet on yeah, that one, but was Bernie Williams using them in, I believe it was 97? Whenever, whenever it was he became a free agent for the first time, there was all this chatter that he didn't want to stay in New York, he was going to leave the Yankees. It was 98. 
And so there was all this like public flirtation between him and the Red Sox and that like, you know, Boston was a real contender to sign him. And then it turns out it had all been a front. Basically, he was just using Boston to drive up his price with the Yankees who'd always wanted to keep him and just eventually, you know, they gave him whatever it was what they gave wanted. him. Yeah. And that was that was just the Red Sox in a nutshell at that point in time. They were just there to be used by other teams <laughs> in their pursuit con- of things. It's a funny contrast because like that was a bleak that was a bleak moment. A relatively bleak, we should say relatively bleak time for the franchise. I can't complain too much about Red Sox history because most of my life has seen it just be insanely successful. Right, right. But like you, you were like, I'm a root for this team that is, you know, not the worst, but not the best. And I was like, I'm going to root for this team because they will be good forever. And our our fortunes have diverged in our respective fandoms, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I know yours is different because like, you know, you grew up in the Seattle area and so you... Yeah. You know, you had that team right there. Yeah, we went to those games. Yeah, and you got to yeah. you got to grow up with the mid to late '90s Mariners, who were cool. I mean, the '95 yeah. Mariners were awesome. Like they were. Yeah. They saved baseball in that region, and then yeah, you know, the 2001 Mariners were incredible, and so yeah. you know that was a that was a good time to be a Mariners fan, and then yeah, and then you know, it's not really since, but <laughs> I feel like the last 17 or I guess almost 20 years of Mariners history is just kind of some slight <sighs> mumbling. Yeah. Well, I've said before on this podcast that I mostly use baseball fandom as an excuse to feel sad in a low stakes kind of way. So it's still serving a purpose, even if it isn't a winning baseball one. But then you fast forward in your fandom and your team wins approximately 1 billion championships and has this weird up and down pattern that it engages in. I would read and publish a sabermetric study and whether the season to season variance of the Red Sox is actually all that different from other teams or if it only feels different because they are a media market that we talk a lot about, but it sure seems like it's a lot up and down and you win a bunch of championships, including one in 2018. And then this off season, they decide they're going to trade Mookie Betts. The thing with the variance is that, like, it's weird because, one, a team like the Red Sox ostensibly should never experience that kind of variance. Like, I know things go wrong, but, like, teams like Boston should be big enough and rich enough to buy their way out of those problems. Like, right. It, it's like the Yankees. It's like, in my lifetime, they've never been bad. They've been mediocre a few times. Yeah. Never been abject bad. Which is incredible. And like, granted, I think they're the only franchise you can really say that about over the last 25 years that they've just never had a bad, bad season. Every other contender, I think, has had at least one year where it's just been like, geez, like everything just fell apart, you know? Yeah. And I think, too, that the weird thing about the Red Sox stuff is when it goes bad, it goes really bad. Like, right. It's following the 2013 World Series with like, however many of the games they lost in 2014, I think 95 or something. Yeah, like, the 2014 Red Sox were a 71-win team. Yeah, which is crazy. Like, they just won a World Series year before. I think I, I looked it up as one of the worst, like, performances from a defending world champion literally in baseball of, history. Yeah. Or yeah. something like following up. Or not even so, even just the in like the within in the in season variants or something like the yeah. twenty eleven Red Sox who were on pace to be one of the best franchise teams in franchise history, then completely self destruct in that September, and yep. then Terry Francona gets fired or not quite fired but let go, and then they drop pill popping allegations on him, and then Bobby Valentine becomes manager. And it's stuff like that where it's like it's not just that the Red Sox are bad; they're bad in this kind of ludicrous, cosmically insane sense. Where it's yeah. like things just go completely into the toilet. Yep. And actually, I think that's kind of what's amazing about the 2019 Red Sox is they were mediocre. 
I don't think anyone expected they were going to win 108 games again, because that was, no. you know, that's really hard to do in the first place. But they were just kind of, I forget how many games they won, like 83 or something, 84? 84, yeah, yeah, just a totally blah team. I was just expecting, like, they, they, I mean, they, were, they had a terrible April, and they just never really got on track from that point forward. And the Yankees spent most of the season just smacking them upside the head. But they never just got really bad, which is weird, because that's always what I'm just kind of conditioned to at this point, is that when things go bad for the Red Sox, they go really bad. But I guess they were just saving it for the offseason when they could unload their most popular and best player for very little in an effort to save money and make sure that no one trusts the franchise ever again. Yeah, so it's really hard to tell how you feel about the offseason moves based on that description. But yeah, like this this is a team where, you know, Mookie Betts has been their best player really since 2015 in terms of in terms of war very popular such an affable young man just face of the face of the franchise you know and then they're like eh, what if you took your your services to LA does it pain you personally to see him in Dodger blue does it hurt every time has it started to hurt less in the brief period where we've seen spring training games or is it still really grabbing you I have yet to see a Dodger spring training game so yeah. I haven't actually really witness it beyond just seeing like photos on Twitter which is still yeah. extremely strange and like I assume every fan has that when they have like a you know a longtime franchise player just go somewhere else like I imagine when when Ichiro ended up on the Yankees that was probably an extremely weird bit of cognitive That's dissonance very upset about that or like those photos of Felix Hernandez in a Braves uniform which my brain still is not it's not accepting as, as a thing that exists yeah, it's a weird, you you know, fandom is just inherently a strange activity to engage in and it makes you root for stuff that, you know, you're kind of sometimes ashamed to admit to other people and I'm going to admit to one of those, which is that when Cole Hamels, we learned that he was hurt a little bit and was going to perhaps not be ready for opening day. I was glad about that, not because I dislike Cole Hamels or because I want him to have a bad season. I, I want him to do well. I enjoy watching Cole Hamels pitch, but I was like, oh, maybe this means that Felix will get his go. And so I was happy about that. So I have struggled less with him in a Braves uniform than I expected to. But how much of that is like how acrimonious the exit was? It's a not small part of it. Right? And not it's just acrimonious, but also like how clearly diminished he was by the end. Yeah. Yeah, that final Mariners start he had was I I cried. I I teared up. I will admit it. I got emotional. I mean, I cry pretty easily, so it doesn't seem like much of an accomplishment, but I got worked up. It's true. I did. That's kind of the thing about fandom is you you're rooting not necessarily for entropy, but you're rooting in knowledge of entropy. Like you know yeah. it, it all ends in a certain way and like rarely if ever do it's one thing, like, because obviously teams never end. Well, sometimes well, they get contracted, sometimes they move, but their teams are kind a, of... It is an uncommon occurrence, far less common than the end of a player's career, which happens all the all time. All the time, yeah. If you're a fan of the Twins, the Twins aren't going anywhere anytime soon. But if you're a fan of Joe Maurer, yeah. that was inevitable. Like, <sighs> And rarely, if ever, do they get... To, like, rare is the David Ortiz-style exit, where they go out on top. At least right. on top in terms of, like, their abilities, not necessarily in terms of, like... Yeah, the result. But th that's kind of the thing with, with the Mookie stuff that makes it all the worse is like he was still this wasn't an acrimonious thing. This wasn't like Nomar in 2003 or four, where there were just clearly so much bad blood between player and front office that something had to change. Yeah, you know, nor was this something where it's like a declining superstar, where it's like, this is our last chance to get something for him. 
Right. Or that his value is overinflated or something. This oh. is legitimately the second best player in baseball. Yeah. And like he he wanted to be there. The only dis, the only like issue was that he thought he was worth more than the Red Sox thought he was worth. Which he thought he was worth what he was actually worth. Exactly. And that's the thing. Right. Like it's not even that like the Red Sox offered him 400 million. He's like, "No, I want 500." Cuz if that's the case, then like I get it, you know? Yeah. No one's going to you're not going to pay 500 million dollars for anyone but Mike Trout. And even then. The thing to me is like when you say like we're only going to offer you 300 million or whatever and it's like you know he's worth more than that. Like there's no right. way you, the smart team with the smart people in charge, have any kind of like proprietary valuation system that that says he's bad. Yeah, you put that you put all Mookie Betts' variables into and it spits out that number. That's impossible. Right. Like right. You know, and even keeping in like in mind too that like whatever number it spits out is probably not enough anyway because players right. that are that elite and that good are inherently going to be undervalued by the metrics we have. Like, there's just no right. way to calibrate that properly. I don't think. Just, I, I think everyone kind of made that point when Mike Trout signed his extension was yeah. that there's no, there's almost no number that's too big for him right. because of how good he is. Like, there's no way to calculate that properly. So. Yeah, it's a very dispiriting sort of thing, I would imagine, as a... I've, I've never quite had exactly that experience, because even when Griffey wanted out of Seattle, he was not what Mookie Betts is. No, it, it really should say something in terms of how like sad this is, that even a Mariners fan is like, I've never had to deal with something like this. Oh no, our, our brand of sadness is more persistent, but uh, again, lower level. Its constancy means that you're sort of a nerd to it after a while. Well, here's a, here's a question. You got all kinds of noises on your end over there. Yeah, sir, I got a friend text me. He's a, my friend who, he lives in Paris. He covers um, sports for the Wall Street Journal there, and he's a big Arsenal fan. And That's a very fancy sentence. Yes, I know. Liverpool just lost, so they're, that's their <gasps> first loss this season. And my friend who's an Arsenal fan, he hangs on to this, because Arsenal went undefeated 2000, in the 2003 season. They're the only team in, in Premier League history to do that. So he's been just waiting for this moment for Liverpool to lose because he didn't want to have to share that. It's yeah. the same, he hangs on to it the same way that any time a team goes up 3 nothing in a best of seven in baseball, I never want another team to come back from that. I never want to be able, <laughs> I never want to let go of 3-0. Like, I imagine Cavaliers fans feel the same way about 3-1 sure. um, with the Warriors, but like, so yeah, he's just been texting me his endless schadenfreude about Liverpool blowing their opportunity, but yeah, you were saying is... about the constancy of sadness, which feels yeah, like a very yeah. this is... Protestant... Yeah, I was going to say it was the... Calvinist the... podcast. I've <laughs> never been accused of that before. No, what I was going to ask you is that, so, you know, they trade Mookie Betts and Raleigh, like, that's bad. And they move David Price in the bargain. And then, of course, because this is how baseball works, the Yankees suffer some, some very bad pitching news. And you sit there and go, eh, wouldn't it be nice for the Red Sox to have Mookie Betts and David Price to be able to capitalize on this? But wouldn't that wasn't was. my question. My question was going to be, despite those moves, which, you know, obviously diminished their playoff odds, um, we at Fangraphs still have the Red Sox having about a 50-50 shot to make the playoffs this year. Granted, that that number will move as we as we play games and whatnot. But I ask you, John, to contemplate how you anticipate feeling if this Red Sox team ends up, you know, finding their way into October baseball. What are you what are you gonna feel? Because you know that that front office they're gonna have they're not gonna say it in public because maybe they'll know that it would it would be uncouth, but they're gonna have that little glint in their eyes that says, see, it's fine. 
fine. Yeah, I, on the one hand, I don't want them to be rewarded for this. Yeah. It'd be one thing if they had traded Mookie in November and then used the quote-unquote savings to get better players. Sure. And kind of, you know, reinvest. It's another thing when they just get rid of him in, what was it, late January, early February, whenever this trade, I, it feels like it was 18 years ago, but I reality, it was it only like two weeks. And then just don't do anything with that quote-unquote savings. So they can't even really claim that whole like super smart raise thing where it's like, we just reinvested the money and didn't got, instead of having one player worth seven wins of mm-hmm. replacement, we have four players each worth two. And that's more valuable, even though it's, I don't think it actually is. So I, I don't want them to be right, so to speak, especially because they didn't do anything after the fact. You right. Know, they didn't, it was just a move. It's explicitly to save money. And the, the thing that just kind of cements that is the fact that David Price was included. Because yeah. this you can make an argument. It's a bad and stupid one, but you can make an argument that Mookie Betts is not necessary to this Red Sox team. Sure. It's a lot harder to make that argument with David Price because this rotation is so bad. Right. So this, and which leads me to what your question was, how I feel this team makes the playoffs. Shocked because so many things have to go right. Right. And if that many things go right, then I assume this team's actually going to be a lot of fun because that means a lot of guys are playing way over their heads and or they're getting unexpected contributions from either total schmoes like Martin Perez or Jose Peraza or from dudes in their farm system like Brian Mata or Darwins and Hernandez where you would not have imagined them to make any kind of positive impact. Right. So that that would be cool if it happened, but I just, in my mind, it's like, the, the thing about getting rid of Mookie and David Price is it's, you've both lowered the ceiling and lowered the floor. Mm-hmm. And you've made it so much more likely that if one, if, like, even just like Chris Sale, even Chris Sale just missing, if it ends up being just what he misses, like, is a week or so of, or, or two weeks of, of action. Right. Just losing those roughly, like, 20-ish innings probably already takes them down by a win because of who they need to replace right. him with in the starting rotation. Like, it has to be... I, I can't even tell you who's who the fifth starter options are for the Red Sox, and now one of those guys is guaranteed to make a start within the first week of the season. Like, this, yeah. is, this is the kind of thing where it's like, I'll be stunned if they make the playoffs because there's just... There's so many holes on this team that they didn't really feel like filling over the offseason and then in the course of like with three weeks to go before like spring training or whatever they made an even bigger one and didn't fix it yeah right now if you look at their depth chart the way that they have tackled this question is to have rodriguez up top chris sale is right now listed as their fifth starter with a little asterisk because <laughs> he's he's not officially on the injured list yet i suppose which is why but they're like look we know we know He's actually going to be down here, is really the answer. Man, Ryan Weber just looks like, what's his name from SNL? That was really specific of me. Yeah, that's, he's that very much that guy from the thing. Yeah, he is technically James Ryan Weber, but his nickname is listed as Webb. Isn't Ryan then his nickname because he goes by Ryan Weber? Mm. I feel like Webb is his nickname only by virtue of that's what guys in the clubhouse call him. It's either Webb yeah. or Webby or Webb. Someone there probably says Webster. Oh boy. The Webman, Web dude. Maybe some enterprising guys like Spider Man. Oh. Spider or Spides or yeah. uh, Mr. Mr. Eight Legs. The Arachna dude. The Arachna dude. I hope that's I want a his... major league career just so I can be the annoying dude in the clubhouse who gives out bad nicknames. Yeah. This is something I've railed about before in other places. There's such a dearth of good nicknames now. Yeah. Like, no one has a good nickname. Like, Mike Trout doesn't have a good nickname. Well. How is that possible? Well, I mean, like, have you looked at him? Okay, fair. But, like, 
I find how boring Mike Trout is to be kind of charming. I mean, I don't think that that's the only way that you can be. Like, to be clear, I think that there should be room for a lot of different personalities, which is why. Like, his nickname on MLB.com, which has a roster photo where it's like, Mike, make a decision about whether you're growing out the facial hair or you're going to be clean shaven. I think this is kind of inspiring. So, like, this is great radio. I'm talking about a picture that you and our listeners are both not able to see. But if you were to look at Mike Trout's roster photo on MLB.com, he has kind of patchy facial hair in it. I'm sure that like if he put his mind to it over the season, he could learn how to grow a good beard because he just doesn't like submit to failure like normal human beings do. But if I were a man and I were looking at Mike Trout's roster photo and I saw this patchy facial hair business, I would be like, ha ha, finally, a thing I can do that Mike Trout maybe cannot grow a beard that that's why i have a beard actually is just to prove that i can do something mike trout can't well there you go i mean i think that's perfectly reasonable but his nickname on mlb.com is kid yeah i don't you know that's that's not the best it's not the best nickname how many eyes are we working with here let's see we got one two three four five I wonder if that was an intentional choice. Was he like six too many? A gaudy number. I would love to know the decision-making process by which Mike Trout figured out how many eyes yeah, he wanted in his nickname. Yeah. Was he like, eh, six is too many. That's showy. I'm a, I'm a boring man who likes weather and my wife. That's it. I, I appreciate Mike Trout's boringness, though, because it's clearly, it's genuine. Oh, yeah. Like, he's not, this is something I've, like, told people, like, when you talk to Mike Trout, and, like, every, you know, every reporter has you know their interaction with trout where it's it's very boring he just does not say anything interesting and that is by design because he just does yeah. not want that attention but it's not by design in a way that feels like he's blowing you off or being rude or like you know just as like whatever you don't deserve to hear it's not like the way Derek Jeter is just plain dismissive right. of reporters when they talk to him he's very nice he's he will he will answer your questions he just doesn't have anything to say and yeah. I almost respect that where it's like you're not being a jackass about this you just really don't have anything to say and that's yeah. cool yeah and you're allowed to be boring yeah you're allowed to be boring just like you're allowed to be vivacious we should just like allow for the range of personalities that human beings have my thought at one point i was like oh maybe like the way to have an interesting interview with mike trout would be to go to an eagles game with him like maybe that would do it and i don't even think it would because i think he would be like i'm trying to watch the eagles leave me alone yeah seriously my thought has always been that you could ask him about the weather. Like, I'd always want to do something yeah. where I just went up to him and be like, hey, Mike, what do you think about the weather? Because yeah. that's something he actually cares about. But then at the same time, I, apparently, number one, someone's already done that. Sure. And number two, it's there's also only so far you're going to get with that, I feel like. Right. It's not like you can, I mean, I think that if you wanted to, you could engage in some very pained, like, cloud types as Rorschach test business with him. But you'd have to, it would be pained. It would be overdone, slightly twee, probably a little overly fraught. So I think that we just have to let him be, I mean, his middle name is Nelson. <laughs> right? Like, his name is, his middle name is Nelson. That's not the mark of a, a person who's, like, wildly interesting. I don't know. It's just nice. I think it's just a nice thing to be really good at something, except we've learned growing facial hair. Also, at having a neck that's normal. Yeah. But that's not his fault. He is sort of thumb-like. It's, it's, just, it's like a wagon wheel attached between his head and his torso. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
it is reassuring to me in a in a moment in our uh, history as a species where we are just confronted with how awful we are all the time that there is someone who could literally be the best at something and it doesn't seemingly make him a jerk it fills me with hope for humanity it's like uh you know francisco lindor just seems genuinely joyful and happy to hang out with people and happy to sign kids autographs and wants to engage with other human beings and he is so good at baseball and he wants to do that like he thinks that's cool to do and a thing he should do and it's like some of these people are good we hope i'm trying really hard to not get overly invested in the goodness of strangers because it's just a way to be disappointed but so far they have not disappointed us so that's nice well that's the thing it's like it's for me it's like i don't care how boring mike trout is because and this is going to sound like extremely like you know, middle-aged beat writer, but, like, you go, like, when whenever the, the Angels are here, or whenever I've, like, seen them play, like, in person, like, been there, it's like, he'll do his BP, and then he'll go sign. He'll sign for yeah. all the kids who are there. It's like, he clearly, yeah. like, likes the kids and, like, wants them to feel about baseball the way he feels about baseball, because I think he feels about baseball the way they feel about baseball. Yeah. And it's like, I can't begrudge the man for his silence, relatively speaking, or his boringness, because ultimately, like, he really cares about the game, and again, extremely middle-aged beat writer, he is a pitch-perfect ambassador for the sport, and yep. just how much he loves it, and how much he, like, wants other people to love it, and how he treats the people around it. I guess that's the thing, it's like, there are two ways you can be a good ambassador for your sport. You can be the the outspoken, kind of, media type, like a LeBron James, who's just omnipresent, and willing to do whatever, and, you know, makes the sport more interesting and cooler by virtue of your own person or you can just be the super nice guy who just like every person you interact with you make you make it so that they have something they care about. like every kid he signed a ball for like has that cool thing now going yeah. forward and like yeah. if that helps them hang on to baseball even like one year longer or whatever is or as yeah. long as they're willing to tolerate the angels and their existence like that's great you know and maybe maybe when they get tired of the angels they move on to something else but that's that's useful. That is that is just as useful as being on late night TV or in every commercial or whatever else. And besides, baseball has that. That's Bryce Harper. You know, it's right. it's not it's not Mike Trout's fault that he doesn't want to be that. If it's if anything, the league. If anything, it's just more the league. Ideally, could just find more of the Bryce Harper type guys who are willing to be the you know public face of it. I yeah. guess the problem is some of those guys maybe don't speak the English well enough to to do that. I mean that that's its own but that's its own unique yeah. problem within baseball in terms of like who you can spotlight to an American audience. Yeah, although I I don't know, it does seem like we're making some small amount of progress there. I don't know. I think my favorite like moment, well, I only saw half of the home run derby last year cuz I was traveling back from Cleveland. So, I will put that caveat on this, but you know, they had Francisco Lindor mic'd up and he, you know, he is clearly a very comfortable and fluent English speaker, but he was mic'd up for like one of the innings in the All-Star game last year. And good gravy. I was like, you should just be president. He's just the most like charismatic person. Like, my stars. Or to bring it back to, to what we were talking about, Mookie Betts, who's yeah, in, oh who, is, who is trout-like in the way he doesn't really want to share stuff about his personal life to the press. Yeah, he likes bowling, so. He, yeah, he's kind of a, he's a little bit of a square. That's the Nelson middle name of recreational sports bowling. But at the same yeah. time, he is charismatic and charming oh, yeah. and like... Good gravy. He is fashion forward in a way that the sport never really has. <laughs> I, I need them to bring in 
the way that they do it for NBA players, the tunnel walk, so they can show, like, so guys like Russell Westbrook yeah. can show off their fashion. I need that for baseball just so I can see. It would have been funnier like 10 years ago when everyone was wearing Ed Hardy and Affliction shirts. Like when everyone was wearing the Ryan Braun collection. Uh, and there were so many bedazzled bits of denim. Yeah, but like, it, it's more guys like, I, I know like a guy like Aroldis Chapman, for example, dresses like extremely like, you know, his his whole thing is like being fashionable. I don't know how many other guys are like that. Chapman's just the, the first one who jumps to mind, but yeah, I need the tunnel walk though for the guys like Madison Bumgarner who are wearing the same pair of jeans every single day. And then like a, a rancher shirt because that's yep. just his thing with the snap buttons. Yes. Or the guys who just show up wearing like, I don't know, I guess Ichiro would have been another like fashion forward type guy with his extremely yeah, like jeans. cuffed jeans. Yeah. I have a very clear memory of uh, Corey Seager's, I think, rookie. When was he an all-star? 2016, I want to say. Yeah, so he, I have a, I have a clear memory of him on like the the all star red carpet, and he's just wearing like jeans and a button down. He looked fine, but you could tell that the button down was was new because it still had the creases where it had been folded. <laughs> and I was like, Corey, you just want, you just gotta iron it, guy. Like you just have to run an iron over that. That's all it is. It's nothing. Two nice shirts. <laughs> I, I just picture their like their wives and girlfriends just looking at them and just shaking their heads and going, "For the love of God, like you can do this impossibly." Yeah, so he was an all star in twenty sixteen, right? Because that was almost the like seven. But it's like it's the same thing like when Manny Machado shows up and he's very like you know he's got his blazer and his V neck like yeah. uh, tank top and whatever, and he looks fashionable and and very kind of South Beach. And then yeah, Corey Seager shows up in a shirt that he just bought from the Gap like two days ago. Express for men. Yeah, yeah, very much like Armani <laughs> Limited or whatever. Yes. Going like what I would do when I was in college and look like I needed like a, a nice dress shirt, go to Macy's and buy like Club Room brand. The like yeah. $25 shirt. Yeah, you're like, I'm not cheap. It's got a club on it, yes. It's and, from and Macy's. People, the people who are screaming, Meg, he was, I know he was an all-star in two years. It was 16 and 17, and then there was the injury business. But I like how you've preemptively figured that there must be someone who is listening to this in the future and is like, Meg, Meg how dare you? How dare you? But I think I'm going to send you a strongly worded email. Yeah, by 2017, he was like, look, I gotta, I've seen the pictures from last year. I got to iron this shirt. Do you ever get strongly worded emails as the EIC of fan graphs? No, because people don't know my email. <laughs> okay, that's probably... Let's just keep and it And I that don't way. have open DMs either. I did open DMs for like a week because I was like, let's see how this goes. And then I was like, oh, as badly as I thought. The, no, end, re the end result is the ship and event horizon. Like, <laughs> Yes. Yes. Walking around with your eyes in your hands, like screaming in Latin. I'm in hell. Ah! Just, I just, I do just like the idea of a listener being like, Megan Rowley, how dare you? How dare you, yeah. Using my full name to denote how stern and serious they are. Megan, like, Megan. middle name, Rowley. Yeah. I don't know what Ashley. your middle name is. Ash it's okay, I was, Ashley. I was going to guess, it's, 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 another, it's another lady's first name. Like, Lindsay's middle name is Marie, which is, just feels very, like, appropriate. Like, the Lindsay Marie Adler is just like, yeah. bam. It, it just makes sense in my head. I don't know why. I mean, granted, my my entire like name is like just one giant like st should be like private school dean like. <laughs> despite the fact that I am a person of color, which granted, like when I when I applied to college, I I, I checked the little box that said Hispanic or Latino or whatever sure. it was that the college application had. Yeah, but I didn't include a photo of myself. 
So I just imagine the like admissions office staring at my name and then staring at the box and going, he must be screwing with us. Like, I mean, I will say John Taylor sounds like, you know, one day the home improvement um, casting director was casting about and was like, uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas isn't available. We got this John Tyler fellow. Close Could enough. he sub in? You show up on set and they're like, oh no, how will we explain this person being related to Tim Allen? They sent you home. That young man's that young man's career peaking, I imagine peaking, right at the same time I was like a child, like definitely made the jokes very repetitive when I was in like third or fourth grade, you know? Yeah. I was, every time I'd pick up my copy of the little Disney magazine from the supermarket, what was that thing called? I don't even remember. Uh. I don't know. Did you know? Oh my God, John! I'm gonna tell you something, and you're gonna you're gonna struggle okay. with this piece of information. Are you ready? Was it Disney Adventures? Was that what I was reading? Anyway, can I continue. I don't know. Did you know that Jonathan Taylor Thomas, whose last name is not Thomas? Okay, I'm already, I'm now ready. I'm already more pissed off. <sighs> he is 38. Wow. What does he do I now? Just- well, I'm so glad that you asked that question because I've learned another thing about him, which is that he like uh, he went to Harvard for a little bit and then um, went to St. Andrews and then finished his degree at Columbia. Oh, wow. And I don't know. I imagine he just sits at home and like counts that home improvement money and then... Because uh, every time that airs on whatever cable channel is still airing home improvement for whatever every reason... Every channel. He gets like 35 cents every time that happens or whatever. It's yeah. a residual check. Yeah. It was it was Disney Adventures I was thinking of, the small magazine, the Disney oh, okay. magazine for kids. Oh, yeah. I actually okay. looked it up on Google. The first Google image result is Pierce Brosnan surrounded by Disney princesses. It's well, very that... strange, and I don't understand what they were aiming for with any of this. Also, let's think about the title of that. A Disney magazine for kids. Isn't that every Disney magazine? You would think that, yeah, that implies the presence of Disney for adults. like Disney After Dark. The Pleasure Island magazine or whatever the area for adults in Disney was called. Oh, no. Did you know, I'm going to tell this story and then I, I'm going to say that we should wrap up because I'm conscious of it being more like 50 some odd minutes into this and, you know, people tire of podcasts when they go past an hour. So one time I went to Disneyland because I'm from the West Coast, so we don't mess around with the Disney World business because it's just very far away. And I was an adult woman and my sister and I went to Disneyland. She was also an adult, still is. We went to Disneyland on vacation, like sister vacation. And I have to say, Disneyland as adults with no children is a wild good time. So I recommend that for anyone who doesn't want to, you know, travel to an actually interesting place and would prefer to go to a theme park, vote yes to that. But they don't serve alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. And we learned this when we went to lunch at like the nice restaurant next to Pirates of the Caribbean. I want you to like ruminate on that sentence for a second. And we're told very sternly when we asked for a wine list because we were on vacation. So we were going to have a glass of wine with lunch like you do when you're on vacation. And we were told that there's no alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. But then we went to California Adventure and did like a whole wine tasting. So they got our money in the end. I want to say that Disney World the adults area because i think i i went there when i was my dad had a conference a work conference in orlando when i was like 13 i want to say and so my sister and i went with him so we could go to disney world cool and i want to say when we went into the pleasure island area to get dinner one night mm-hmm. that was the first place i ever smelled marijuana because <gasps> someone was clearly like getting high in pleasure island which now thinking about it as an adult rules that idea yeah. that you're just gonna get super stoned at disney world <laughs> 
I think John Jeremiah Sullivan has a whole essay about that, actually, which is very much a, a thing. But I was going to say, like, it, that reminds me of when I when we were at winter meetings and I went to the San Diego Zoo, and I didn't realize this until I was there and, like, already halfway through. You can just buy beer and walk around with beer in the zoo. Really? Yeah. You can just hang out. Like, I, I had to ask, like, three different people working there. I was like, this isn't a trap. Like, I can just buy a beer and walk around and, like, go heckle the monkeys and no one's going to tell me anything? And they're well, like, well, please don't heckle the monkeys, but yeah you, yeah, you can have a beer if you want. To be clear, I think that if you were heckling the monkeys, they would probably be like, sir, this is a family place. You would you think? Can't <laughs> you can't heckle them. You can just get quietly drunk in front of them. That's the thing. I can't be, I can't be like riotously like intoxicated, but I can just be kind of like lightly buzzed, like staring at the monkeys going, this is pretty <laughs> cool the way you guys got this situation here with your treehouse. <laughs> I'm just imagining a child watching you interact with the monkeys in that way and like looking back on it 20 years later being like, I learned something about adulthood on that day. I created some kid's formative memory by just like walking <laughs> around the zoo with a beer and just yelling at the animals and they're like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, like you're sitting there, like, "Hey, man, being an elephant, what's that like?" I'm very, I'm very excited to do this again in Phoenix. If if Phoenix has a zoo worth going to, or maybe an aquarium. Something about Phoenix the idea does. of an aquarium in a desert is actually kind of amusing to me. Phoenix does. I don't know if they have an aquarium. They definitely have a zoo. Okay. I was in before we were in San Diego for uh, winter meetings. I was in the greater Phoenix area for a friend's wedding, and it was around Christmas. We did zoo lights at the Phoenix Zoo. And it was great fun. It rained. Weird. Also, the only time I've been to the botanical gardens there, it rained. So something's going on with me and the weather in the in the valley. But all of that to say, hey, John, thank you so much for coming on Fangrass Audio. You will be at our Phoenix meetup, assuming that the coronavirus... Come talk to the guy who does the tweets. Yeah, come talk to the guy who does the tweets, and hopefully we'll do a little do a little writing that you will then have to self-promote in a way that will feel strange. Are you going to wear the dad hat? I, Lindsay has already laid claim to the extremely dad hat. I cannot separate her from it. That's fair. I need to decide exactly what happened. Cause I try to stay away from wearing like, especially cause like as you know, when I was doing reporting and I'd go to a ballpark wearing a hat, I certainly can't wear a Red Sox hat. Sure. So I just, I've usually worn like a Hagerstown Suns hat cause Hagerstown oh. is where I grew up. Sure. And the Suns, at least for the time being, still exist. And then sure. eventually they will not, and it'll be a collector's item. But I got to figure what else I can. Because I got a, I got a few, like, minor league hats that are, you know, neutral enough, like a Clearwater Thresher's hat. or a, Sure. Or a, I got an Expos hat that is a little too small for my head, but I try to wear anyway. Like, you know, which is also what I wear to Nationals games. It's like, I'm the original. Like, yeah. my Expos hat, I got my Nick Johnson jersey. I'm just... <laughs> Really leaning into a particular brand of... That is delightful. Well, people should come to our meetup, which is on Friday the 13th, because we like to be spooky, and ask you questions. Oh man, someone's going to die. Yeah, you know, we don't want to make light of the looming pandemic, but if listeners are concerned, you know, we are (laughs) monitoring it very closely. (laughs) That sounds ridiculous. But it's the truth. We actually have to pay attention to this stuff. We do. We had a whole conversation internally about, you know, what to do. I checked in on the venue, Angels and Trumpets, in Arcadia, not the one in downtown Phoenix, because that lovely spot is a little too small. So we are in the Arcadia venue, which is new and supposed to be very lovely. And they have great beer at Angels and Trumpets. So we hope people come and hang out. But yes, we are not 
thankfully interested with determining the United States' disease response, but we are monitoring the situation. But as of now, and hopefully as of whenever this podcast goes live, we are still going to be hosting our event on Friday the 13th. And we Uh, promise we won't shake hands with people. Yeah, we'll be, you know... No face touching. We'll uh, cough into our elbows if if the need arises but john we will have you back on the show a little later in the season to talk about red Sox and other things thanks for hanging out man thanks for having me